Sports Island is a complete sports podcast covering all major news and topics from across the PGA Tour, NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, and NCAA. This podcast focuses on sports only, as political, racial, and social issues are not discussed. If you are a sports fan and are looking to stay up to date on all of the major news and topics from across the major sports, then Sports Island is truly your getaway destination. You're listening to the Sports Island Podcast with your host, Rick Mitchell. And now, the Sports Island Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This is version 59 of the show, and I feel like I say this every week, but this is definitely an absolutely loaded episode. Uh, Tons of football to get into, just a massive NFL segment. Going to recap week 18 and all the drama that went down there, plus give you a playoff preview and do some predictions for the super wild card weekend that is upon us. Uh, Recap some PGA Tour golf. And, of course, we'll talk about some NHL, NBA news and standings and uh, plenty of news out of college football as well, including a national championship game to recap. So we'll get into all of that. We are going to start off in the PGA Tour, recap this past weekend's event. It was the Century Tournament of Champions, which was held at the Plantation Course in Kapalua, Hawaii. It's on the island of Maui. It's a rare par 73 course, the only par 73 course on tour, and it was a distance of 7,596 yards. A lot of elevation changes at Kapalua. Uh, Big fairways, wide open fairways, but uh, very undulating, very uh, uh, up and down, so to speak. Uh, Of course, you had some amazing amazing ocean views that went with it, and the the field itself was only 40 players, uh, 39 of the 40 were winners on tour from last year's tour events. Uh, Rory McIlroy was the only tour winner from last year that did not participate. Instead, it was Xander Shoffley who took his spot as the Olympic gold medalist from this past summer. So you had a star-studded 40-person field, and it was the 10th event of this 2021-2022 PGA Tour season. And I mentioned last week how uh, the the par 73 coupled with the wide fairways, would calculate to some very low scores. And boy, was I right. Uh, Cam Smith was your winner with a score of 34 under par, which is insane. It was actually the lowest score in PGA Tour history for a 72-hole event. The previous low score was a 31 under par. So Cam Smith beat that set a new record by three strokes. And uh, as far as the scoring goes, there were only, it was a par 73, like I mentioned, there were only five rounds out of the 40 golfers that played four rounds each. There were only five rounds that were above par, and they were all at a 74, which was one over. That was Justin Thomas in round one, uh, Patrick Reed in round one, Brendan Grace in round three, uh, Lucas Glover in round one, and Lucas Herbert in round four. Those were the five rounds that were the only rounds over the par 73. Now, uh, Grace 
Glover and Herbert all finished towards the bottom, uh, in the in the bottom five. Uh, Justin Thomas and Patrick Reed both played pretty well the rest of the way. Uh, but like I said, Cam Smith was your winner at 34 under par. Just an amazing, amazing round of uh, tournament of golf, really. He shot uh, two 8-under 65s and two 9-under 64s. In fact, he opened with the 65 rattled off back-to-back 64s, and then closed with a 65. Uh, John Rahm finished second, just one shot back of Cam Smith, 33 under par. Uh, He was just unbelievable all weekend. He didn't bogey a hole until the third round. He only had one bogey there. Uh, Matt Jones was third place at 32 under par. One shot back of Rahm, two shots back of Cam Smith. Now, Matt Jones... Um, was 18 under in his last 22 holes, uh, including a course tying record round of 61, 12 under 61 in Sunday's final round. Now that uh, 61, the course record was actually set by Justin Thomas in round three this year. He shot a 12 under 61, which was bogey free, and that record only lasted about an hour and a half or a couple hours until John Rahm finished his round because Rahm ended up also shooting a 12-under 61 in round three on Saturday. And he did so with a bogey on his card. So uh, just unbelievable performances by those two on Saturday. And then Matt Jones on Sunday fired off a 12-under 61. Like I said, he had he was 18-under in his last 22 holes to get that solo third. Then there was a pretty big gap in scores. So you had Smith at 34 Rom 33, Matt Jones at 32 under par. Fourth place was Patrick Cantley at 26 under par. And then three-way tie for fifth place. Colin Morikawa, Justin Thomas, and Daniel Berger all were at 25 under par. Nine shots back of Cam Smith. Now Morikawa shot an 11 under 62 on Sunday's final round. Uh, almost tied that course record to get up to a T5 uh, but just an unbelievable weekend of golf. Uh, the, just to put this in perspective, the lowest score dead last was Jason Kokrak at seven under par, and he did not shoot anything but under par. He had two 72s, a 71, and a 70 for his four rounds of golf. So he shot under par in all four rounds, only ended up at seven under par, which was dead last by like 27 shots. So just incredible performance by Cam Smith, John Rahm, Matt Jones, all three of those guys really kind of separated themselves. But uh, just an unbelievable weekend at Kapalua. But this weekend's PGA Tour event is the Sony Open in Hawaii, and it's at the YLA Country Club in Honolulu. This course is a par 70, distance is 7,044 yards. So it's about 500 yards shorter Uh, And it's a par 70 instead of a 73. So unlike Kapalua this past week where it was very undulating and wide open, YLA is much flatter and a lot narrower. So the the fairways are a little harder to hit. It's a little tougher to play. And we should still see some low scores. Uh, The tournament's average winning score over the past 10 years has been 19 under par. So uh, a little, little better than half as good from last week. Uh, Now last week, of course, was record-breaking, but... You get the point. You're you're gonna see some, uh, you're gonna see some scores, uh, definitely in those low high teens, this weekend here at YLA. 
Now, the field for this is pretty solid. That's your average, you know, average number of players. Uh, 24 of the 40 players that played at Kapalua are making the trip over to Honolulu. And Cam Smith is one of them. And he actually won the Sony Open back in 2020, a couple years ago. So if he plays half as good as he did this past week at Kapalua, I would fully expect to see his name near the top of the leaderboard. And since the Century Tournament of Champions, which was last week, got moved back to Hawaii, which was in 1999, 16 of the 23 Sony Open winners have also played at Kapalua the week prior. So it's very likely, uh, just based on percentages and historical data, that the winner this week will be one of those 24 players that played at Kapalua this past week. And your defending champion, Kevin Na, is one of those players. He played this past week at Kapalua. He's also playing this week in YLA, and he is the defending champion. So I would uh, certainly circle Cam Smith and or Kevin Na as two likely guys to finish uh, in the top half of the leaderboard for sure. But uh, it's going to be another good weekend in Hawaii. Um, Of course, amazing golf uh, just the views, the scenery, just everything about golf in Hawaii, just watching it, uh, it looks amazing. Would love to play at either of those courses, but um, definitely tune into that because it's going to be another good one this weekend on tour. But we'll move on to college football, and like last week before we hit the NFL, I want to just run through college football real quick, and that's because we had a national championship game this past Monday night. It was a rematch of the SEC championship game, featured Alabama, Crimson Tide, and the Georgia Bulldogs. Now, the head coaches, of course, Nick Saban for Alabama and Kirby Smart for Georgia, uh, coached together for 11 years. Uh, Kirby Smart was uh, under Nick Saban. And during their uh, pre-week press conferences uh, throughout this, this last week, week and a half, uh, it came up, the, the topic of recruiting and Nick Saban and Kirby Smart both said that they wanted some guidelines on the name, image, and likeness, or NIL uh, regulations that are going on in college football now, basically saying that the NIL regulations should be governed by somebody and that uh, certain schools shouldn't be allowed to offer any more money than other schools. Sounds to me like... uh, they're getting a little scared or jealous, maybe, and which is which is funny that they would say that because those are two of the top probably schools in the country right now, other than Ohio State. I would say those are the top three programs in the country. They can get any five star athlete they want. So uh, I just thought those comments by Saban and Smart were kind of odd, you know, considering like I said, they they pretty much have a team full of nothing but five and four star recruits. So um, I, I don't know really what their, their purpose was on that. Uh, it's not going to affect them either way uh, because kids are still, the top kids in the country are still going to choose to go to Bama or Georgia. But as for the national championship game itself, like I mentioned, it was a rematch of the SEC championship game that was back on December the 4th. And Alabama won that game 41-24, to just put a thumping on the Bulldogs to clinch their spot in the playoffs, and uh, they both won. Alabama won the Cotton Bowl over Cincinnati, Georgia, won the Orange Bowl over Michigan. We recapped those last week. But this game, uh, Georgia was actually a two-and-a-half-point favorite entering the game, and uh, since Alabama, or since 2008, Alabama has been the underdog 
in six games. They went five and one in those games, including three and zero against Georgia. So they've the last four times they've played Georgia, they've never been the favorite. They've had two hundred and six points for, and one hundred and eighteen points against in those six games. So you come into this game, you know, I I talked about my prediction was that Alabama would win. Uh, I liked. Uh, the, the teams are pretty even with the exception of the quarterback and the coach. I liked Nick Saban better than uh, Kirby Smart, and I liked, uh, you know, uh, Bryce Young better than Stetson Bennett. So at the two most important positions on the team, uh, Alabama had the advantage. However, the game was played, and the first half was pretty much a snooze fest. It was just nothing but field goals, five total field goals in the first half, was the only scoring, you know, three for Alabama, two for Georgia, even though the teams combined for 330 passing yards in the first half. Um, there were uh, three plays over 40 yards, uh, two by Alabama, which was a 40-yard pass to Jamison Williams and a 50-something yard, 52 or 60-yard pass to Cameron Latu, and then Georgia had a 52-yard pass to George Pickens. But that was all the excitement in the first half, nothing but field goals. And then Jamison Williams, on that 40-yard catch, uh, he came down, he went to go plant uh, to Juke, and his knee kind of buckled and just gave out. And uh, that was all she wrote for Jamison Williams in that matchup. So he left the game in the second quarter, and we didn't really have any action until late in the third. Uh, Georgia blocked an Alabama field goal with about three minutes left in the third quarter. The next play from scrimmage was a 67-yard run by James Cook, Georgia ended up punching it in a couple plays later to take the lead. But then the strangest play of the game happened with about 11 and a half minutes to go in the fourth. Uh, Alabama defensive end Christian Harris sacked Stetson Bennett, but Stetson Bennett was throwing the ball away kind of as he got hit, as he was falling down. The throwing motion uh, moved the ball forward, but they, they looked at it and reviewed that the ball was actually loose before he started throwing, thereby ruling it a fumble. And it just so happened that the ball went forward and bounced out of bounds. But as it was bouncing out of bounds, Brian Branch from Alabama went over there and nonchalantly just grabbed the ball. His foot was on the line. Yeah, I don't even think he really knew what he was doing per se. I don't think he – I thought he thought – it was pretty clear he thought it was an incomplete, incomplete pass. But he grabbed the ball, good awareness, and, and stepped out of bounds at that point. So – They ruled it a fumble and an Alabama recovery on the 16-yard line. So Alabama punched it in a couple plays later to take the lead. And then Georgia followed that up with a touchdown drive of their own. Uh, Beautiful 40-yard pass from Stetson Bennett to uh, Adonai Mitchell. Uh, Gave Georgia a lead. They went for two, didn't get it. Uh, Georgia got the ball back, took it down the field uh, after Alabama punted. And then this drive, Stetson Bennett found phenomenal freshman tight end Brock Bowers for another touchdown, put the Georgia up uh, 26-18, eight-point lead. So that gave uh, Alabama about three and a half minutes to get a final drive put together. But uh, after that fumble, Stetson Bennett was four for four for 83 yards and two touchdowns. It was like something clicked in his head. And if you watch the post-game interview, he said, uh, I did not want to be the reason that my team lost this game. So it was pretty clear where his head was at. So we go to the three-minute drive. Alabama moved the ball about 30 yards on a few plays. 
Then they had interesting play calls here. They threw a couple of deep passes, two in a row to be exact, on uh, first down and second down. Both of them were to Ja'Cory Brooks. And that second one, he was open. He beat uh, Darian Kendrick, I believe, the corner for Georgia. And the ball hit off of his right hand as he was extending it. And he was incomplete. And that brought up third down. And on that third down play, Bryce Young threw another deep pass. It was underthrown and kind of forced in that direction. And Georgia freshman corner Keeley Ringo uh, made the interception, took it 79 yards for a pick six to seal the deal. Now, uh, Georgia ended up winning the game. That was the final score uh, of the game. It was 33-18, to kind of opened it up there in the fourth quarter. Now, I, I circled that play to Ja'Cory Brooks, the second and 10 call uh, deep down the right sidelines on that pass that hit Brooks in the hands. Now, Alabama was super shorthanded in this game. You know, they didn't have John Mechie. Of course, he tore his ACL in the SEC championship. So you're missing one stud wide receiver. And then Jamison Williams, uh, although he did have four catches for uh, 67 yards, I believe, something like that, um, he did not play the entire second half. That would have been a pass that Jamison Williams uh, would have, could have and probably would have caught. Uh, if it was thrown to Williams. He probably actually would have beaten Kendrick a little cleaner than what Brooks beat him. So that would have changed the game. Now, Alabama still would have had to score a touchdown and convert the two-point conversion. But if if Jamison Williams is on the field for that play, I think it's a different result. And I think we're talking about this game going into overtime. And who knows at that point what could have happened. So I'm not saying that that was uh, the difference in the game, but I do believe that that was an absolutely massive play in this game that really – uh, could have changed the outcome. But nonetheless, the Georgia Bulldogs are the national champions. Uh, this is their first national championship since 1980, which is 41 years. Uh, at the time, Kirby Smart, the coach of Georgia, was only five years old. Uh, this is also Georgia's, uh, well, this win makes Georgia the 13th school to win a national championship in the BCS slash college football playoff era, which I thought was kind of odd, but then you think about it, uh, you have teams that have won multiple titles, you know, Alabama, LSU, um, Texas and Oklahoma each have won, Florida State, uh, you know, there's some schools that have won, USC uh, has a couple, so there's a lot of repeat winners, uh, but there's Georgia's the 13th team since the BCS slash college football playoff era began to win a national title, and this was Kirby Smart's first victory against his former head coach, Nick Saban. So he's now one in four against Nick Saban. But that is that's that's going to wrap up obviously the college football season and of course bowl season. And I came across this stat uh, for the conclusion of college football: the final bowl game records by conference. And this does not include the national championship game, uh, simply because it was two SEC teams, so it wouldn't change the winning percentage since they went one and one technically in that game. But the uh, highest winning, I'll do this by winning percentage, was the Mountain West Conference. They went 5-1, and one, 83%. Uh, the American Athletic Conference went 3-1, and one, that's 75%. Sunbelt Conference is 3-1. and one. Uh, The Big 12 was the highest of the Power 5 conferences. They went 5-2 and two in bowl games at 71% winning percentage. The Big 10 was 6-4. and four. Uh, The SEC, 6-8, and eight, 43%. Conference USA was three and five. Uh, the MAC Conference, Mid American Conference, three and five. 
The ACC went two and four, very disappointing bowl season for the ACC. And then the Pac-12 went 0 and five, just absolutely miserable for the Pac-12. And uh, the Independents uh, went two and four, or uh, two and two rather, four games for the Independents. They went two and two to move along at 50%. So I just thought that was interesting that they had the final records by conference listed. So uh, that being said, it was a very exciting college football season. It was great to see the fans back in the stands in full capacity, uh, even though this last uh, month or so we've been dealing with Omicron and and before that, the Delta variant had hit at some point during the college football season. So it was good to see everything back to normal, uh, full stands. And uh, we look forward, of course, they'll get their spring camps going. we got recruits uh, showing up early on campus as early enrollees. So next college football season is, is shaping up to be a good one as well. But we'll move on to the National Football League. And man, what an absolutely unbelievable finish to the regular season here in week 18. We're going to get into all of it. Of course, we have our super wild card weekend playoff matchups set. We'll get into those, do a prediction, and um, yeah, we'll, we'll get you all caught up here on the NFL. But before we do, just want to run through some news uh, from various teams across the league. We'll start off in the AFC East, the Miami Dolphins. Uh, rookie wide receiver Jalen Waddle. He broke the rookie record for receptions in a season with 104. Uh, Anquan Bolden had done that. He set that record back in 2003 with 101 receptions. So Waddle broke that by three catches. And, uh, you know, he, he averaged over 40 yards a catch at Alabama. And in the NFL, he has been more of a short yardage dump off guy. But he has elite speed, and even though they're not using Waddle the, the way that we thought they would coming out of college, he has still been very productive, and uh, he looks to be a key piece of that Dolphins offense moving forward. Over in the AFC North, Cincinnati Bengals rookie wide receiver Jamar Chase, he set the Cincinnati franchise record for most receiving yards in a single season with 1,455. That's not just a rookie record. That's a franchise record for most receiving yards in the franchise's entirety. So uh, we obviously know what an elite talent Jamar Chase is. They took him fifth overall this year, and uh, he just uh, set the NFL on fire. Pittsburgh Steelers linebacker T.J. Watt, he tied Michael Strahan's sack record from back in 2001 when Strahan had 22 and a half sacks, TJ Watt tied that this past week. Now he did miss a game earlier this year. So with a lot of these records, you know, we say, oh, 17 game season, but uh, Watt did miss a game earlier this year. So he only played in 16 games, which is what Strahan did back in 01. So uh, that's apples to apples right there. And then uh, rookie running back Najee Harris, he broke Franco Harris's uh, Pittsburgh record rookie record for the most rushing yards in a rookie season with 1,200 rushing yards. Now, he also had 467 receiving yards, 10 total touchdowns. So it was a great year for Najee Harris, and that was with a piss-poor offensive line and a horrid Ben Roethlisberger at quarterback. So uh, I would expect Najee Harris to make a bigger leap in year two. Over in the AFC South, the Tennessee Titans, they are getting Derrick Henry back for the playoffs. Of course, they've secured the top overall seed in the AFC. We'll get into that. 
But uh, they've activated Derrick Henry off of their injured reserve list, uh, designated him for return, which is scary for the AFC. The Titans have home field advantage, and now they're getting a, a healthy and well-rested Derrick Henry. So, uh, you know, I, I the Titans aren't flashy like the Chiefs, but they just get it done. And uh, Derrick Henry certainly going to help that. They are certainly one of the favorites to win the AFC. Uh, over in Indianapolis, Colts running back Jonathan Taylor, he completed the running back triple crown, led the league in rushes with 332 rushing yards with 1,811 and rushing touchdowns with 18. Uh, just an, a phenomenal year by Jonathan Taylor. I, I certainly think he's in the conversation for MVP. I know the Colts didn't make the playoffs, so he's probably not going to win. But with those numbers and the way he carried that Colts team that last half of the year, he's got to be in contention. The Kansas City Chiefs, they became the fifth team in NFL history to win 12-plus games in four consecutive seasons. And uh, Patrick Mahomes, in Week 18, he threw his 150th touchdown pass of his career, and he became the second fastest player to reach that milestone. And Mahomes did it in 63 games. Dan Marino did it in 62 games. So uh, that's Mahomes averaging uh, 2.38 touchdown passes per game so far through 63 games, which is very impressive. And truthfully, uh, he probably should have shattered Marino's record uh, this has been kind of a down year for Patrick Mahomes. He had a couple games earlier this season, about midseason, where he didn't even throw a touchdown pass at all. So um, uh, Mahomes probably should have beaten Marino's record, but uh, he still is the second fastest to 150 touchdown passes. Over in the NFC East, uh, in the NFC now, the NFC East, Dallas Cowboys, they put another 50-burger on the board in Week 18 against Philly. That was the second time in the last three games they scored 50 points, got a little bit of momentum and offensive rhythm heading into the playoffs. And in that game, Dak Prescott set the new single-season passing touchdown record in Dallas Cowboys history, uh, throwing for a career-high five touchdowns in that game to bring his season total to 37. He broke Tony Romo's record of 36 touchdowns in a season that was back in 2007. And while Prescott did play in 16 games, uh, he did miss a game with that calf strain against Minnesota. He didn't play. So, again, uh, that record, just like T.J. Watt's sack record, that record should be without an asterisk because uh, he only played in 16 games. Now, with the win versus Philly in Week 18, the Cowboys swept the NFC East going 6-0 and in those games. It's only the third time in the NFC East division history that that's happened. The 2004 Philadelphia Eagles did that, and the 1998 Dallas Cowboys also did that en route to a Super Bowl. Now, after that game uh, this past week, in Week 18, the Dallas Cowboys became the first team in NFL history to have a 4,000-yard passer, Prescott, a 1,000-yard rusher, in Elliott, a 1,000-yard receiver, CeeDee Lamb, a player with 10-plus sacks, Micah Parsons, and a player with 10-plus interceptions, Trevon Diggs, all in the same season. So that's very impressive. I know the extra game probably did. It certainly helped Zeke uh, get over 1,000 yards, but uh, everybody else had those numbers before that game started. Uh, Philadelphia Eagles rookie wide receiver Devontae Smith, he set the new Eagles rookie record for most receiving yards in their rookie season. He broke Deshaun Jackson's record of 912 yards, 
and that record was set back in 2008. Over in the NFC South, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, they officially released wide receiver Antonio Brown last week before Week 18 got started. After we got some more info, uh, you know, about that whole bizarre incident where he left the field in Week 17 uh, in New York, uh, Antonio Brown had come out and said that Bruce Arians was forcing him to play through an ankle injury that he had sustained, which, ironically enough, he had an MRI, and that actually did confirm that he did have a legitimate uh, ligament issue in his ankle. Uh, Arians said that, uh, you know, he got into an argument with Antonio Brown and told him to get the F off the field. So uh, Arians did admit to kicking Brown off the field, and then Brown, you know, acted the way he did. Didn't appear to be injured as he was doing jumping jacks off the field. Um, but Antonio Brown did release some screenshots. Uh, allegedly, that was his conversation with Bruce Arians before that Week 17 game that basically told Arians he was dealing with the ankle injury. But either way, uh, Brown is released. He's no longer on the Buccaneers, and they do not have to carry that drama with them into the playoffs. Uh, but in that uh, Week 18 game, Tom Brady set the record for the most touchdown passes in a season in Tampa Bay Buccaneers history with 41. He broke his own record from last year where he had 40. Uh, also in that game, wide receiver Mike Evans became the only wide receiver in NFL history to begin his career with eight consecutive 1,000-plus receiving yard seasons. So uh, basically you can jot Mike Evans down for 1,000 yards receiving. Uh, it's been super consistent over his first eight years. Over in the NFC West, the Los Angeles Rams wide receiver Cooper Cup. He completed the wide receiver triple crown led the NFL in catches, receiving yards. Uh, well, he had 145 catches, 1,947 receiving yards, and 16 receiving touchdowns. Led the NFL in all those categories. He came just 18 yards short of beating Calvin Johnson's receiving yards record uh, for the most receiving yards in NFL history in a single season. So he was 18 yards shy of Megatron, even with that extra game. Over in San Francisco, wide receiver Debo Samuel. He set the new record for the most rushing touchdowns by a wide receiver in a single season with eight. So he had eight rushing touchdowns on the year, and that doesn't even factor in. The dude had 77 catches for 1,405 yards and six receiving touchdowns. And then he threw a touchdown pass in Week 18 against the Rams. So the guy's the definition of a do-it-all player. Uh, he had, you know... Uh, Almost 1,800 total yards and 15 total touchdowns between receiving, passing, and uh, rushing. So the dude is just super sp – he stayed healthy all year. Uh, health has been a factor in his career so far. But as you can see, he's just been an absolute monster this year and uh, probably the main reason that the 49ers are in the playoffs. But that brings us to week 18 of the NFL season and – it was just an unbelievable week, uh, so much drama that happened, and it all started uh, early in the day on Sunday, week 18, in the AFC. Uh, the Jacksonville Jaguars went on to destroy the Indianapolis Colts, okay, in that early afternoon game, beat them at home, and eliminated the Colts from the playoffs. Now, all the Colts had to do was win the game, and they were in the playoffs, guaranteed. Well, that didn't happen, and they have not won in Jacksonville since 2014. 
Uh, hard to believe. It's been seven years since Colts have won in Jacksonville, but that is exactly what happened again here this year. So uh, Indianapolis was eliminated after the early window. Uh, another game in that early window was Pittsburgh and Baltimore. So with the Colts losing that game, uh, that was the key to unlock an avenue for both Pittsburgh and Baltimore to get into the playoffs. Uh, they both needed Indy to lose that game in order to be eligible. If Indy would have won, then both the Steelers and the Ravens would have been eliminated. However, the Colts lost. So that game, Pittsburgh and Baltimore, whoever won would still be in contention. Whoever lost would be out. That game went into overtime. It was a sloppy game. It was cold, raining, just horrible conditions. The offenses were absolutely anemic. It was horrible. Uh, Pittsburgh ended up winning in overtime, so that eliminated Baltimore. So then all Pittsburgh needed to get into the playoffs was for the Chargers and Vegas Raiders game to not end in a tie. We'll get to that in a minute. Over in the NFC, the New Orleans Saints got up early on the Atlanta Falcons, and never looked back, so the Saints won, which made that middle game of the Los Angeles Rams and San Francisco 49ers carry that much more weight because San Francisco could get into the playoffs with a win. Because remember, there was only one NFC spot up for grabs, and it was either the Saints or the Niners that were getting it, and the Saints had won uh, before the Rams and 49ers game was over. So that meant that the 49ers had to win in order to get into the playoffs. So that game, San Francisco got down big. It was 17-0. They got a field goal right at the end of the first half and then came roaring back in the second half, uh, took the lead, or, you know, tied it, took the lead, whatever, and uh, ended up scoring a last-minute touchdown to tie it. Game went into overtime, and San Francisco ended up getting an interception in overtime after they had kicked a field goal. So the 49ers won the game in Los Angeles, beat the Rams, and clinched that final playoff spot, which eliminated the New Orleans Saints. Now, about that 17-point comeback by the 49ers, it was the largest comeback to clinch a playoff berth since 1993 when the Raiders did that. And uh, the Rams were up 17-3 at halftime. Rams had previously been 45-0 under Sean McVay when leading at halftime, and now they are 45-1. Pretty impressive stat there, Uh, but they still won the NFC West due to the Cardinals losing to the Seahawks at home. So, uh, but the Sunday night game, that, my God, that was the last game of the year, and it very well may have been the best game of the entire season. So it was, it was the Sunday night game. So we knew all the other playoff scenarios had already happened. Uh, The NFC was already clinched. Uh, We knew about that. And the AFC, going into this game, it was a win-and-end situation for both the Los Angeles Chargers and the Las Vegas Raiders. Whichever team won would be in the playoffs. Whichever team lost would be out. And as long as there was an outcome of a win-loss, then the Pittsburgh Steelers were in. If the game ended in a tie, then both the Chargers and the Raiders were in the playoffs, and the Steelers were eliminated. So there was three teams whose playoff lives were riding on this game. And it was a solid game, obviously ridiculous, back and forth. Uh, The Raiders got up by 15 in the fourth quarter before the Chargers came surging back. Uh, They tied it in the last minute, got the two-point conversion, sent it to overtime. 
Uh, in overtime, uh, the teams traded field goals. I think the Raiders kicked theirs first, then the Chargers answered with the field goal. <clears throat> and uh, as the game wound down, the Raiders had the football. And with about 38 seconds left, uh, they were about on the 40 or so yard line of the, of the uh, Chargers. Uh, Chargers head coach Bri uh, Brandon Staley called a timeout. Uh, questionable timeout. It's not like they were getting the ball back. It appeared uh, there was no urgency in the Raiders to snap the ball, so uh, it was very likely that the Raiders may have just let the clock run out instead of risking a blocked field goal. Uh, but nonetheless, the Chargers called a timeout. Uh, Vegas came back out, ran the ball, got a pretty sizable run, 8 to 10 yards by Josh Jacobs, and then uh, they let the clock run all the way down to 2 seconds before they called a timeout. They ended up kicking a game-winning field goal, which eliminated the Chargers. So a lot of folks are saying uh, the Chargers cost themselves the game by calling that timeout. Uh, Brandon Staley said he wanted to get his run defense out there. That's why he did that, which uh, I'm not sure why you wouldn't just let the clock run at that point and let the Raiders make that decision about running another play. But nonetheless, the uh, Chargers were eliminated. Raiders grabbed a playoff spot with the win, which also gave Pittsburgh a playoff spot. They were two seconds away from uh, missing out on the playoffs due to a tie, the most unlikely thing to happen. <clears throat> but uh, both the Raiders head coach Rick, uh, Rich Basaccia and quarterback Derek Carr both said that they were intending on running the clock out until the Chargers called that timeout, So, which I don't believe because uh, they're, you know, why would you – you could have knelt the ball, you know. You could have taken a knee after the Chargers called a timeout. So I don't exactly think that they were being 100% honest about that. I think their intent the whole time was to kick the field goal, uh, considering Daniel Carlson's one of the best kickers in the league. So I don't exactly believe Derek Carr or Rich Passaccia on that. But either way, the game was not set up at all. Uh, the Chargers were down by 15 in the fourth quarter, came back to tie it, uh, they were 6-for-7 on fourth down. First time in the last 30 years that a team has converted six fourth down plays in the same game. That was just nuts. And they were all long-distance fourth downs, too. Uh, but the Raiders' victory gives them only their second playoff appearance in the last 19 years. It also makes them the fourth team in NFL history to make the playoffs with a head coach that did not start the season as a head coach. The last team to do that was the 1961 Houston Oilers. Now, <clears throat> props to the Vegas Raiders uh, this season. Uh, they've done nothing but face adversity. At first, it was the John Gruden incident where he uh, stepped down and resigned due to some uh, email allegations that were dug up from several years ago. So they lost their head coach. And then within a week or two of that incident, uh, star wide receiver Henry Ruggs uh, ended up getting in that car crash, uh, killing uh, a female, innocent female, and uh, he was uh, way intoxicated per the uh, lab results. So, um, you know, just horrible string of events there for the Raiders. But Rich Basaccia came in as the interim coach and just took these guys uh, to the playoffs, even when everybody thought they were counted out. So huge props to the Raiders there. But that brings us to the super wild card weekend matchups and uh, lots of good football. I'll just read off the standings in the AFC. The top seed was the Tennessee Titans. Okay, these are the official standings after the Week 18. In the AFC, top seed is Tennessee Titans. 
The number two seed is the Kansas City Chiefs. Number three seed, the Buffalo Bills, who did win the AFC East. Number four seeds, the Cincinnati Bengals. Number five is the Las Vegas Raiders. Number six, the New England Patriots. And number seven, the Pittsburgh Steelers. Over in the NFC, the top seed was the Green Bay Packers. Number two seed, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Number three seed, Dallas Cowboys. Number four seed is the Los Angeles Rams. Number five seed, Arizona Cardinals. Number six seed, San Francisco 49ers. And the number seven seed is the Philadelphia Eagles. So that brings us to the wildcard matchups. There are two games uh, on Saturday, three games on Sunday, and one game on Monday, which is the first time we've ever had a wild card, a Monday night wild card game. They introduced that this year. So the Saturday's games, Saturday, January 15th, they're both at uh, in the AFC. The first one's at uh, 4.30 Eastern on NBC. It's uh, the Vegas Raiders going to Cincinnati to take on the Cincinnati Bengals. These two teams met back in week 11 in Las Vegas, and uh, Cincinnati won that game 32-13. to <clears throat> Cincinnati's at home for this one. I love Joe Burrow. He got a week of rest last week. So did Joe Mixon due to a COVID test. They're getting both of them back. Uh, Jamar Chase, T. Higgins, Tyler Boyd. I think that's too much for Vegas to overcome. Vegas pretty much spent everything they had last week uh, on that Chargers game. Uh, I like Joe Burrow more than I do Derek Carr, and I like uh, pretty much all skill position players on the Bengals more than I do the uh, Raiders. And Zach Taylor's done a hell of a job as the coach of the Bengals this year. Uh, give me Cincinnati to win that one. The second game on Saturday is at 8.15 Eastern on CBS. It's number six, New England Patriots going to Buffalo to play the number three seeded Buffalo Bills. This is an AFC East division rivalry game. Uh, of course, these two teams being that they're in the same division, they've played each other twice this year. Um, week 13 was the first game. It was in Buffalo. New England beat Buffalo in Buffalo that week, 14 to 10. Now that one was the bad weather game where it was like negative degrees and thousand mile an hour winds and uh, the Patriots only threw the ball like three times, I think. Um, Mac Jones was two of three for the whole game passing. So that was that game. Patriots won in Buffalo. And then they met again a few weeks later in week 16 in New England. And uh, Buffalo beat New England in Foxborough 33-21. to So they split the season series. Man, this is uh, certainly the better game on paper um, on Saturday. It's hard to go against Bill Belichick, right? Uh, it's it's very hard. They got a rookie quarterback in Mac Jones, who's been nothing but terrific this year. But uh, I just, you know, the Bills are at home, and Josh Allen is one of the top, probably six or seven quarterbacks in the league. When he's on, he is up there as one of the very best due to his athletic ability to run the ball and the uh, hand cannon he's got for an arm. So. Uh, I I do not want to bet against Bill Belichick. However, given the circumstances and the rosters, uh, I think Buffalo uh, is going to repeat their performance from Week 16, and I do believe the Buffalo Bills will beat the Patriots uh, at home on Saturday night. So Sunday's games, there's three games. 
Two of them are in the NFC. One of them are as the AFC game. <clears throat> Starting off at 1 Eastern, uh, noon Central on Sunday, January 16th. It's NFC game number seven seed Philadelphia Eagles going to Tampa Bay to play the number two seed Buccaneers. And that game's on Fox. These two teams met back in week six in Philadelphia. Tampa Bay beat Philadelphia 28-22, to so it was a close game. Uh, I, you know, they're getting Jalen Hurts back. Of course, they sat a lot of their starters last week when they got demolished by the Cowboys. So I think the Eagles, they have Miles Sanders might be back. So uh, I, I think the Eagles are going to try and get the ground game going. I know Tampa's got a good run defense. But uh, this game, it's Tom Brady, right? I know they don't have Chris Godwin or uh, Antonio Brown, obviously. But uh, the Buccaneers still have Tom Brady, Mike Evans, uh, possibly Leonard Fournette, and that defense is still pretty solid, uh, especially their run defense. So if they can stop or contain Philly in the run, it's going to be very problematic for the Eagles. So uh, I'm not going to bet against Tom Brady in the first round. So uh, give me the Buccaneers to beat the Eagles. The middle afternoon game is in the NFC as well. It's the number six, San Francisco 49ers. Coming here to Dallas to play the number three-seeded Dallas Cowboys. That game's at 4.30 Eastern on CBS. And these two teams did not play each other in the regular season. Um, I was pretty happy about the matchup when I first saw it um, because it was looking like it was either going to be the Rams or the Cardinals for the Cowboys, but it ended up being the 49ers. Uh, Certainly, you'd rather play Jimmy Garoppolo over Matt Stafford or Kyler Murray. But the way that the 49ers run the ball has me a little concerned. Uh, Debo Samuel, like we talked about earlier, kind of the jack of all trades, Swiss Army knife. I'm a little concerned. Uh, George Kittle's just a monster. Uh, but Dallas's defense has shown up time and time again throughout the year and really carried them uh, to the 12 wins, even when the offense uh, took a dump. So uh, Cowboys are at home. <clears throat> the way that they play, they're getting Micah Parsons back. Tyron Smith should be back. We should be ready to go full health, the Cowboys. So uh, give me Dallas to beat San Francisco uh, on Sunday. The final game is on Sunday night. It's at 8.15 Eastern on NBC. It's the Sunday night football game in the AFC. Number seven, Pittsburgh Steelers at the number two-seeded Kansas City Chiefs. This game is in Arrowhead. These two teams played each other just a few weeks ago in week 16 at Arrowhead as well, and the Chiefs beat the hell out of the Steelers 36-10. to uh, I, you know, this is quite possibly Ben Roethlisberger's final game, or could be his final game, um, and I, I truthfully, I think it will be. Uh, I think this is the final goodbye to Ben Roethlisberger. Uh, the Steelers' defense, if they show up, they can keep it close, but, um, you know, the health of Tyree Kill is uh, in question with his heel injury that he sustained last week. Uh, he only played, I think, in 20 snaps, but... The Chiefs can score at will. Uh, They've been taking longer, slower, methodical drives this year instead of those two- or three-play, 80-yard, quick-strike drives that that we're used to seeing. Like I said, I think Pittsburgh's defense, if they play up to where they can, um, I do believe that they'll keep it close. But Pittsburgh's offense has been so horrid this year. Roethlisberger's looked awful. The offensive line sucks. Najee Harris has to fight for every single yard, and he's good at doing that. He's got breakaway speed, uh, and I like Harris a lot, but 
I just don't I just don't see the Steelers beating the Chiefs at Arrowhead, uh, especially when they just got thumped there a couple weeks ago. Uh, Kansas City's clearly the better team. The Steelers made it into the playoffs uh, on a prayer, and uh, I just I don't see that ending well for Ben Roethlisberger. I think this will be his final game in the NFL. And then the Monday night game for the wild card round is in the NFC. It's the number five Arizona Cardinals at the number four Los Angeles Rams. It's on 8-15 Eastern on ESPN. It's an NFC West division rivalry. All right, they've played twice during the year. The first game was in week four, and that was in Los Angeles. Cardinals won that game 37-20. to And then week 14, they met again in Arizona, and the Cardinals... Uh, excuse me, the Rams won that game 30-23. to So they split the season series. Uh, that game was also on Monday night. So here we are. This game is at SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles. Uh, I like both teams really a lot. <clears throat> I think this could be one of the better games of the weekend as far as competitiveness and just overall excitement. So I do like uh, the matchup. It's Matt Stafford versus Kyler Murray. Um, I like the fact that the Rams are at home. I know the road team won both the games in the season series. I'm just not betting against, you know, Matt Stafford's never won a playoff game in his career. And I think that changes. Uh, Cooper Cup is going to be too much to handle. Sony Michelle's looked really good uh, in place of Daryl Henderson. And uh, Odell Beckham, you know, he's he seems to be getting the offense more and more by the week. And then that defense, I mean, you got... Aaron Donald, Jalen Ramsey, uh, I don't see how you can really pick against that. They looked really good in the first half last week and kind of fell apart in the second half against the Niners, let them come back, but I don't think that happens again. I think the Rams are going to come out on top by a slight, slight margin, but uh, I can see this coming down to like a last-second field goal or something like that, but um, just the way that the Cardinals played last week in Seattle, that just is not... That's not sitting well. So I, I like the Rams in this one. But either way, it's going to be an absolutely phenomenal weekend here in the wild card round. You have Tennessee and Green Bay sitting on the sidelines with a bye week. They're the only teams to get a bye since they finished as the top seed. So uh, we'll see them next weekend. But uh, what an unbelievable uh, wild card weekend. Some good matchups. So I will certainly be tuned in to that all weekend, as I'm sure you will as well. But we'll move over to the National Hockey League, do a quick standings and news update here in the NHL. Uh, most teams have played between 32 to 37 games. Uh, the COVID situation is still very fluid in the NHL with the seven Canadian teams. In fact, there's only been one game played in Canada, possibly two, uh, since the holiday break. They've, they've only involved Canadian teams. There's another all-Canadian game scheduled here later this week in Calgary. But uh, it seems as though a lot of the Canadian teams are postponing all their games uh, right now, at least the ones in Canada. Uh, The Canadian teams are still traveling over to the U.S. to play games, so we're still getting games played, which is affecting the standings, obviously. So we'll just cover, you know, the top few teams in each division and give some news updates along the way. Start off in the Eastern Conference, the Metropolitan Division. Carolina Hurricanes and the New York Rangers both have 50 points to sit atop that division. Hurricanes have one more win, so they're technically first. They've won eight out of their last ten. They're playing some good hockey. 
Um, the Washington Capitals are at 49 points, so they're right up there. Then the Pittsburgh Penguins, uh, they're at 45 points. They had a 10-game winning streak that was snapped here in Dallas last weekend in a matinee game in which the Stars came back from down 2-0 to, to win. But Pittsburgh had won 10 in a row, so they're making up some serious ground. Uh, they're up to 20 wins now. Um, Columbus is at 33 points along with Philadelphia and New Jersey. And then the New York Islanders, they've only played 28 games, uh, which is the fewest in the league. Um, but they've, they're on a two-game winning streak right now. Over in the Atlantic Division, the Florida Panthers and the Tampa Bay Lightning both uh, sit at 51 points. They both have 23 wins. Now the Lightning have played two more games than the Panthers, and they both won six out of their last ten. So they're, they're both playing uh, really good hockey. Uh, Florida was just down here in Dallas as well last week. Uh, it was a good game, went into overtime. So uh, got to see the Panthers there. I watched that one. So they're they're a good team. Tampa Bay obviously is not going anywhere. They should be getting Braden Point back sometime here in the next uh, couple weeks. And then the Toronto Maple Leafs are four points behind them with 47 points. Boston Bruins have finally passed the Detroit Red Wings for fourth place in the Atlantic with 40 points. And then Detroit has 36 points in 36 games. And then Buffalo, Ottawa, and Montreal, none of those three teams will be anywhere near the playoffs. Uh, they're all sitting at very low point totals right now. Over in the Western Conference, uh, the Nashville Predators, they're first with 48 points. They've won eight out of their last 10, including four in a row. Uh, they look pretty good. St. Louis Blues have definitely found their stride. They're a point behind Nashville at 47 points. They've won seven out of their last 10. Had a big victory in the uh, NHL's Winter Classic on New Year's Day. Uh, stole a win from Dallas the other day uh, on a couple late penalties, but they look, they look solid like the team that won the Stanley Cup a few years ago. Colorado Avalanche are at 46 points. They're on a five-game winning streak. They've won nine out of their last ten. Uh, looking really, this is the Avalanche team that we projected them to be at the beginning of the year. Uh, Kale McCarr, the defenseman for the Avalanche, just absolutely killing it. He does something every day, that every game that you see and just you say, wow, uh, the kid's an incredible talent. Minnesota Wild have 44 points. They sit in fourth, and they're four points behind Nashville. Winnipeg Jets are at 37 points. Then the Dallas Stars, they're at 36 points, 32 games played, uh, which is the fewest in the division outside of Colorado. But uh, they went on a four-game winning streak, including beating the Florida Panthers and the Pittsburgh Penguins, like I just mentioned. But then they just lost uh, in St. Louis. They had a one nothing lead with a minute left. Two penalties were called. It was six on three with the empty net. And St. Louis ended up scoring two goals in 30 seconds in that last minute to steal a victory. Uh, that was a tough one to swallow for the Stars. I still don't know what they are. Uh, they look good. When they look good, man, they, they just win in streaks. You know, they've, they put together four, five, six-game winning streaks and then follow that up with four, five, six losses. So uh, I'm not quite sure what they are, but they have shown a lot of promise here in the last week and a half. The Chicago Blackhawks, uh, they're not in playoff contention, but uh, of note, um, goalie Marc-Andre Fleury uh, beat the Vegas Golden Knights the other night to become the first goalie in NHL history to beat all 32 teams in the league. So pretty cool feat there. And the Coyotes, uh, they're last in the Central. Obviously, they're going to stay there. They're just here for a good time. 
Over in the Pacific Division, quite a bit of news out of this division. Vegas Golden Knights sit up top there at 47 points. They've won six out of their last 10. Anaheim second at 45 points. The LA Kings are at 41 points. And then fourth place, the Calgary Flames. They're at 40 points. They've lost three games in a row. But uh, the other night, Milan Lucic scored a goal, and he became only the sixth player in NHL history to score a goal against all 32 teams. And the other five players to do that are Max Pacioretty, Phil Kessel, Derek Brassard, Mikkel Granlund, and Mike Hoffman, uh, all of which are still current players in the league. And uh, with the addition of Seattle as the 32nd team, those are all guys that have scored uh, against all 32 teams. San Jose Sharks have 39 points. Uh, Edmonton Oilers, 38 points. They currently sit sixth in the Pacific. Uh, They just continue to slide. Uh, They were first and second for the first month and a half of the season, just really playing some good hockey. Uh, But they're 2-6-2 in their last 10. The Vancouver Canucks are at 35 points. They've won eight out of their last 10. They they won their first seven games after Elaine Vigneault took over as head coach. And uh, they've kind of looked all right. I I do not see them catching up to a playoff spot. I suppose they could. Uh, They're only five points back at Calgary for that fourth spot. But uh, we'll stay tuned on that. Vigneault's got got those guys playing good. And then the Seattle Kraken, uh, they're last. They're 24 24 points. They're not going to make the playoffs. They're 1-7-2 in their last 10. Uh, Nobody expected them to make the playoffs. uh, And that really kind of even further got proven whenever one of their best players, Brandon Tanev, kind of their spark plug, uh, hardest working guy on the ice every time he's out there. He uh, tore his ACL and um, he had surgery to fix it or is having surgery. Uh, He did did that back right before the holiday break, but uh, nonetheless, he's out for the year. So that's a big blow to Seattle. Um, But that kind of gets you caught up a little bit on how the NHL is turning out. Uh, like I said, we're we got about fifty games, forty-five to fifty games left for most of the teams, so we are kind of approaching the halfway point. The postponements are causing an issue. Uh, probably going to be a lot of games played in that two-week Olympic break that was scheduled. So, uh, but we'll we'll keep keep you updated on the NHL as we keep moving along. But like I said, very very fluid situation with COVID and how the uh, seven Canadian teams are handling that. Uh, But we'll move on to the National Basketball Association, do a little standings update here in the NBA. The Chicago Bulls are atop the Eastern Conference at 27-11. They've won nine out of their last ten. They look really good. Uh, They just demolished the Detroit Pistons the other day. Uh, I think they beat them by like 45 points or something outrageous like that. The Brooklyn Nets are two and a half games back of the Bulls. They're 25-14, although they did get Kyrie Irving back this past week. Made his season debut against the Indiana Pacers. Scored 22 points to uh, help them to victory that night. So with Kyrie playing in all the road games, uh, or presumably all the road games, you got to figure Brooklyn's going to be uh, right up there at the top the rest of the way. Miami Heat, 25-15. and 15. They've won seven out of their last ten. Milwaukee Bucks, 26-17. and 17. Philadelphia 76ers, they're on a seven-game winning streak. Eight out of their last ten they've won. They're 23-16. Uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers are 23-18. and The Charlotte Hornets have won three in a row. They're 22-19. and 
The Toronto Raptors are 20 and 18. They've won seven out of their last 10. Washington Wizards are 21 and 20. And the Boston Celtics are in 10th right now at 20 and 21. Uh, the last five teams in the East are the Knicks, the New York, New York Knicks, Atlanta Hawks, Indiana Pacers, Detroit Pistons, and Orlando Magic. So the Detroit Pistons have actually uh, won some games here lately. They're 9-31. and 31. The Magic are the worst team in the NBA with seven wins, 7-34. and 34. Uh, They've lost nine in a row. Uh, quick note on the Pistons. They have acquired seven-foot center, I think he's actually like 7-5 or something, Bull Bull uh, from the Denver Nuggets in exchange for Rodney Magruder and a future second-round pick. So a uh, little lineup bolster there for the Pistons. It's all about the future with them. Obviously, they're not going to make the playoffs this year. But uh, over in the Western Conference, the Phoenix Suns are 31-9, and still atop that Western Conference. The Golden State Warriors are just a game back at 30-10. and A big boost for them this past week. They got Klay Thompson back. He returned this past weekend against Cleveland. He only played 20 minutes, but he looked really good. Had 17 points and three rebounds in just 20 minutes. So it uh, looked really good. Uh, he has since played in a second game. Uh, again, looked looked pretty sharp, like he's in midseason form. Uh, the Utah Jazz are third at 23, uh, 28 and 13, rather. And then the hottest team in the league is the Memphis Grizzlies. They're currently fourth in the Western Conference at 29 and 14. They've won 10 games in a row. A huge win the other night over Golden State. Uh, they look real. John ja Morant is quickly becoming a top five player in this league, top ten for sure, uh, with his performance this year. The Dallas Mavericks are currently in fifth at twenty-two and eighteen. They're on a six-game winning streak. The Mavericks are, uh, which is really impressive because Luka Doncic has been kind of in and out of the lineup, uh, but he seems to be back now, and uh, they're looking good. Put up a triple double the other night. Uh, gave him the most triple doubles uh, through that point. I forget, he's only like 21, 22 years old, something like that. It was the most triple doubles uh, at this point in his career uh, in NBA history. The Denver Nuggets are 20 and 19. Los Angeles Lakers, uh, they're seventh currently in the Western Conference. They're 21 and 20. They've played 500 basketball over their last 10. Uh, but LeBron James, he's just been killing it this year. Uh, he's had 18 30-point games this season, which is ridiculous. I mean, they've only played 41 games, and 18 of them he's scored 30 points. That's almost half, so that's really good. Now, he has played five games this year at center. The Lakers have started him at center in five games this year, and in those games, they're 5-0, and averaging 127 points a game. So, uh, LeBron is not usually what you would think of your prototypical center, but um, with his athleticism and scoring ability, uh, the Lakers have got something figured out there. The LA Clippers are eighth at twenty-one and twenty-one. Minnesota Timberwolves are ninth at twenty and twenty-one, and the Portland Trailblazers are tenth at sixteen and twenty-four. Now, mind you, top ten teams get into the play-in tournament. Uh, in both conferences. So the bottom five teams in the West currently, San Antonio Spurs, Sacramento Kings, they're on a five-game losing streak, New Orleans Pelicans, Oklahoma City Thunder, 
also on a five-game losing streak. And then the Houston Rockets are uh, 11 and 31 at the bottom of the Western Conference. So a lot of these teams have played about 40 games or so. Uh, so they're uh, actually past the NHL in terms of games played. Uh, normally the NBA is about a week or two behind the NHL. Uh, but with the uh, NHL's extended holiday break and the, the postponements that we've seen in bunches, uh, the NBA is further along in their season than the NHL, which is uh, pretty interesting. So we'll keep an eye on that. We'll keep you updated. Uh, lots lots of basketball left to be played, and uh, we'll, we'll keep you updated as we move along. But we'll move on to our segment called Around the Island. That's where we do some quick news topics from across the various sports. And this is an absolutely loaded Around the Island segment. So uh, look alive here because we're going to rattle off a ton of information. We're going to start off in the National Football League. Several NFL head coaches have been fired since the end of the season this past weekend. First one was Denver Broncos. They fired head coach Vic Fangio. Fangio had spent three seasons as the Broncos head coach, and he was 19-30 and 30 in those three seasons, did not make the playoffs. He lost his last four games and lost five out of his last six to end the season, and it was Denver's fifth straight losing season. So there's a vacancy in Denver. Next reported was the Chicago Bears. They fired head coach Matt Nagy after four seasons. Uh, he was 34-31 and 31 in those four seasons. He did make two playoff appearances, but we pretty much knew this was coming. Uh, throughout About halfway through the year, it was pretty apparent that the Bears were going to move on from Matt Nagy. It was a matter of when and not if, and uh, just... You know, rough. I know that he had a rookie quarterback this year in Justin Fields start 10 games, So, uh, but he just hasn't gotten the Bears up over the hump there. So uh, definitely not surprising to see the Chicago Bears uh, vacancy open up. Uh, the Bears also fired general manager Ryan Pace. So that is kind of in tandem with Matt Nagy. Uh, I think that's probably very good for the Bears organization, depending on who they can bring in. That's a that's a fairly appealing job. Uh, the Bears have a good young offense with Justin Fields, David Montgomery, and Darnell Mooney's turned into a star this year at the receiver position. So, uh, and the defense is of course still pretty solid. So that's that's fairly appealing. The Bears job. Also in the NFC North, the Minnesota Vikings they fired head coach Mike Zimmer. Zimmer spent eight seasons as the Vikings head coach. He went seventy two fifty six and one in those eight seasons, and he made three playoff appearances and took the Vikings to the 2017 NFC Championship game uh, with the league's top-ranked defense. So, uh, And similarly to the Bears, the Vikings also fired their general manager, Rick Spielman. So another tandem firing there. Uh, definitely, again, you know, the Vikings have been a good team, an above-average team most of Zimmer's tenure. Uh, especially the last few years, you know, with that 2017 NFC Championship game appearance. Uh, they have terrific young talent, Justin Jefferson, Dalvin Cook. Uh, Kirk Cousins is good enough. His his numbers are gaudy. would indicate that he's probably better than he actually is. But uh, the Vikings do have a good defense as well, some, some good players on that side of the ball. So that is another uh, pretty appealing job, uh, as well as the general manager position. 
the most surprising of the firings was the Miami, uh, Miami Dolphins. They fired head coach Brian Flores. Now, Flores had only spent three seasons as the Dolphins coach. He went 24-25 and 25 in those three seasons, did not make the playoffs, but he was taking Miami in the right direction. Um, he beat New England twice this year to secure a 9-8 and eight record. He also had a winning record last year. Uh, Miami actually won eight of its final nine games uh, after losing seven out of their first eight. So uh, I mentioned on last episode they were the first team in NFL history to lose seven games and win seven games in a row in the same season. So uh, this was very surprising. Uh, there was reports that came out that um, you know he was fired because of the way that you know he he treated the players and the the morale, so to speak, around there was a little lower than it probably should be. Uh, this is probably the most appealing out of the vacant jobs right now is the Dolphins. They have over $70 million in cap space this offseason. They have a couple of first-round picks. And, um, yeah, I think there's there's plenty to like there. Uh, young offense, they need a running back to go with Tua Tagovailoa and Jalen Waddell. Their defense proved to be pretty legit. Of course, you have Xavier Howard and Byron Jones on the outside. Uh, that defense was pretty formidable. For at least the second half of the year and uh dolphins have some money to spend and the draft capital to get some good talent in there immediately so the dolphins is a very very interesting opening and then the one that was very strange as far as how it went down was the new york giants okay after their season they originally came out and said that they were going to retain head coach joe judge but then on monday this past week General Manager Dave Gettleman announced that he was retiring, quote, retiring after four years as the GM. Whatever semantics you want to use, uh, I think he was probably fired but uh, or he retired instead of being fired. So whatever you want to say there, Gettleman stepped down. Uh, and then two days after that, the Giants announced that they fired head coach Joe Judge. Now, this is probably the right decision. Joe Judge was 10-23 in his two seasons as coach. Certainly didn't come anywhere near the playoffs in either of those seasons. He's the third consecutive Giants head coach to be fired after two seasons, following Ben McAdoo, who went 13-15, and 15, and Pat Shermer, who went 9-23. and 23. Almost an identical record. Now, over the past two seasons under Joe Judge, the New York Giants have had the fewest points per game, fewest yards per play, fewest points per drive, and fewest 20-yard plays in the NFL. Complete cellar dwellers in almost every major offensive category, despite having a decent offense. Uh, Daniel Jones, not really great. I would say he's highly mediocre. Uh, his athletic ability is such that it opens up another element to the offense. Of course, you have Saquon Barkley. Uh, when he's healthy, he's one of the best pure running backs in the league. And then on the outside, they have Kenny Galladay, Kadarius Toney, Sterling Shepard, uh, Evan Ingram, plenty of weapons. They just do not have an offensive line, so they couldn't get anything going. But nonetheless, uh, the Giants also became the first team in the NFL since 1995 to uh, have not have a 2,500-yard passer or a 600-yard rusher or a 600-yard receiver. And the 1995 team that did that was the Jacksonville Jaguars, which was what their expansion year, very first year in the NFL. So you can see just how absolutely atrocious the Giants uh, were this year and have been over the last two years. And so I, I do believe that Joe Judge, you know, he 
he called two quarterback sneaks on uh, second down and third down inside his own five-yard line in the second quarter of this Week 18 game, which brought up a lot of questions, a lot of red flags, and that the stands were basically empty. Nobody was coming to see the Giants. Uh, they've been a complete disaster in the NFL for the last two years. So um, I think you, you you lose your general manager and your head coach for the Giants. You get to start over. They have two picks inside the top ten uh, we'll get into here in a minute. Actually, two picks inside the top seven uh, this this offseason. So uh, that'll be interesting to see who steps in. You know, as a Cowboys fan, I was hoping Joe Judge would stay just because the Giants have kind of been a laughing stock since he took over. Now, speaking of the NFL draft, we know the draft order for the first 16 picks of the NFL draft. Uh, those were set after the playoff matchups were finalized. The top overall pick in the NFL draft belongs to the Jacksonville Jaguars for the second year in a row. Number two is the Detroit Lions. Number three, the Houston Texans. Number four, the New York Jets. Number five, New York Giants. Number six is the Carolina Panthers. Number seven is the New York Giants again via the Chicago Bears after they acquired their draft pick. Number eight was the, is the Atlanta Falcons. Number nine, the Denver Broncos. Uh, they picked ninth last year as well. Number 10, the New York Jets via the Seattle Seahawks in that Jamal Adams trade. So you have the New York Giants with picks 5 and 7 and the New York Jets with picks 4 and 10. Two teams there with two picks inside the top 10. The 11th pick belongs to the Washington football team or whatever they're going to be called here in a few weeks. Uh, the number 12 pick belongs to the Minnesota Vikings. Number 13, Cleveland Browns. Number 14, Baltimore Ravens. Number 15 and 16 are both uh, Philadelphia Eagles picks. Now, the 15th pick comes to the Eagles via the Miami Dolphins, and the 16th pick comes to the Eagles via the Indianapolis Colts and that Carson Wentz trade. So uh, the Eagles, of course, made the playoffs, so their own pick will be uh, in the uh, mid-20s or so, uh, low to mid-20s, depending on what they do in Tampa Bay this weekend, but uh, the Eagles also have two picks inside that top 16. Now, I came across this interesting stat from the NFL this year. Um, there were six players in the NFL, six running backs, that had over 150 rushing attempts and zero fumbles this past season. Those running backs are Alvin Kamara, Austin Eckler, Najee Harris, Eli Mitchell, Leonard Fournette, and DeAndre Swift. Now, two of those, Harris and Mitchell, are both rookies. And out of that six, out of that group of six, Najee Harris is the only one that played a full season. He's the only one that did not miss any games due to injury. Of course, Kamara, Fournette both missed several games. Same, same with DeAndre Swift. Those three all missed several games. Uh, Eli Mitchell did miss a couple uh, games here and there. Uh, he did play enough to be their starter. Um, but Najee Harris had almost 400 touches, uh, including pass catches. So uh, that's that's the most impressive out of the bunch there is Najee Harris, to be able to come in as a rookie, have almost 400 touches, and not fumble the football once. That is very impressive. So uh, those are six names to kind of keep an eye on. Uh, if you play fantasy football, those guys take care of the ball. A couple of contract signings to report. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers, they've re-signed uh, former first-round pick defensive tackle Vita Vea to a four-year, $73 million deal with 42 of that guaranteed. 
Uh, he's been a big force on that interior defensive line, a big part of their solid rush defense. And then this one's very puzzling, the Los Angeles Rams. They've signed former All-Pro safety Eric Weddle uh, to a one-year contract, basically for the remainder of the season uh, for their playoff run. Now, Weddle is 37 years old. He has not played in an NFL game since the 2019 season. He retired after that 2019 season back in February of 2020 uh, after playing 13 years in the league. So he's older and hasn't played in two years. Uh, Certainly he's not going to step in and be the all-pro safety that we've known him to be. So I'm curious to see how that works out for the Rams. But I thought that was very interesting. Over in the NHL, a contract signing to report, the Boston Bruins have signed Tuka Rask to a one-year, $1 million contract. Now, he actually had, right before that, this last week, he had signed a contract with the AHL Providence Bruins, the Boston's AHL affiliate, um, with the intent of getting to Boston. Now, he only uh, made a few practices, didn't play in a game before they released him from that contract, and he signed with the Boston Bruins. So it's pretty clear that he's ready. Now, Tuka Rask is 34 years old. He missed most of last year with a hip injury, but he did have surgery in July to repair that torn labrum in his hip. And he played in 24 games last year before getting hurt. He had a 9-13 save percentage. So uh, hopefully Tuka can uh, be you know, the, the goalie that we've seen him over the last 5 to 10 years because he's been a really good one. Uh, over in Major League Baseball, we're still in the lockout. No new news on that. Uh, plenty of time to get it figured out. The two sides, uh, Major League Baseball and Major League Baseball Players Association, they have scheduled a bargaining session this week in which the MLB is scheduled to make a new core economics proposal to the MLBPA, which is this is going to be the first proposal uh, for either side since the lockout started. So we're we're starting to potentially see some progress here on that. But the biggest news out of Major League Baseball is that ESPN, they announced that they're going to replicate the Monday night football simulcast with a Sunday night baseball simulcast. So every week over the last, I don't even know how many seasons we've had Sunday night baseball on ESPN. Well, they're going to do the simulcast very similarly to how they conduct the Monday night football simulcast. And it's going to feature uh, it'll be on ESPN two. You know the Sunday night baseball game will be on ESPN. The simulcast will be on ESPN two. They're going to do it for eight of the Sunday night games. Simulcast is going to be hosted by Alex Rodriguez and uh, legendary New York Yankees radio voice Michael Kay. And the simulcast is going to feature special guests, similarly to how the Manning cast was conducted on Monday Night Football. And they're also going to discuss fantasy baseball and other statistical elements. So A-Rod and Michael Kay are going to host that like the Eli and Peyton Manning did. And speaking of that Manning cast, the curse. We talked about the curse on that uh, several episodes ago, how basically every guest, every active NFL player that showed up to be a guest on that show lost the following week. Well, that continued. Week 17, they had Aaron Rodgers as a guest. And uh, he started the game in week 18 against Detroit. And Detroit ended up beating Green Bay last weekend. Now, Rodgers only played the first half, but it was still a close game when he left, and uh, so that Manning cast was 100% this year. Uh, But speaking of the New York Yankees, they have announced that Rachel Balkovic is going to become the manager of their low-A affiliate, the Tampa Tarpons, and um, 
So this is, makes Rachel Balkovic the first woman to manage a minor league baseball team. So that's that's pretty interesting news. Uh, congrats to her on that accomplishment for sure. We'll see how they do. Low A ball obviously is is very very low level baseball in terms of professional baseball, but uh, you got to start somewhere. Uh, we did have a retirement out of Major League Baseball as well. Uh, pitcher John Lester announced that he's going to retire from baseball after 16 seasons. He's 38 years old. He's made 30 or more starts 12 times in his career, and he's compiled over 200 wins uh, throughout his 16 seasons. He's a five-time All-Star and a three-time World Series champion. So don't know if that's going to be enough to get him into baseball's Hall of Fame, uh, but certainly an impressive resume nonetheless. Over in college football, a couple notable transfers to go over. Uh, former five-star running back Zach Evans. He, I think he was the top running back uh, two cycles ago down uh, in Houston. Uh, he spent uh, his first season or two at TCU, had a pretty good year this year before getting hurt. But he's going to transfer over to Ole Miss in the SEC, which is a good program. Obviously, Lane Kiffin has had them inside the top 25 all this past season. Uh, that's going to do nothing but help Zach Evans' draft stock. If he if he does a couple seasons there in Oxford, uh, he's going to come out certainly NFL ready. Uh, former Texas Longhorn quarterback Casey Thompson, he announced that he's going to transfer to Nebraska. He goes as a graduate transfer. He's still got two years of eligibility left, and he should slot in as the starter after uh, incumbent quarterback Adrian Martinez transferred from Nebraska over to Kansas State. Uh, Texas A&M quarterback Zach Calzada is leaving College Station. He's heading over to another SEC school, and that would be Auburn. Uh, he should compete for the starting job after Bo Nix transferred over to Oregon. So Calzada obviously took over this year when Haynes King, their freshman starter, got hurt, and Calzada actually helped A&M beat Alabama this year. Um, the biggest transfer, I would say most impactful, uh, Northwestern safety Brandon Joseph. He was an All-American. He announced that he's leaving Northwestern to head over to Notre Dame. So just right up the road for him. But that's going to be good for Marcus Williams and that defense there in South Bend. But uh, we talked about Caleb Williams, Oklahoma quarterback that uh, entered the transfer portal last week. We mentioned that. Uh, but immediately after entering the transfer portal this past weekend, Williams was spotted in Los Angeles, California. He was at the Rams and 49ers game, and then later that night went to the Lakers home game against the Memphis Grizzlies. So Los Angeles just so happens to be where USC and Lincoln Riley are located. And this is big news. It's uh, reports are that he's going to transfer to USC. Uh, this is obviously a possible clue uh, that he might be headed in that direction. Uh, USC also has uh, secured the commitment of the top overall quarterback recruit for the 2023 cycle next year when Malachi Nelson. And uh, upon learning that uh, Caleb Williams was in Los Angeles, the incumbent freshman quarterback Jackson Dart he has entered the transfer portal, and uh, that's kind of the fallout from the Caleb Williams news. So Dart's a good quarterback. I think he was a four- or five-star prospect, uh, but nobody's going to be surprised if Caleb Williams ends up at USC, which I think at this point is pretty imminent. Um, but I mentioned when we talked about the national championship game just a bit ago, 
I mentioned that Alabama receiver Jamison Williams got hurt on a 40-yard catch. Well, he didn't play the rest of the game. That happened in the second quarter. And uh, the day after the national title game, it was announced that he actually tore his ACL in his left knee. So he's going to have surgery right away uh, within this next week or so. And uh, he has not, to my knowledge, he has not officially declared for the NFL draft. But if he does, uh, he's a junior. If he does, he's obviously not going to be able to participate in the uh, NFL Combine or the Pro Day. Uh, That usually takes place in February. So he's not going to participate in those. Um, He is expected to make a full recovery and retain his 4-3 speed. And uh, Jamison Williams had a monster year. He had over 1,500 yards, 15 touchdowns. And over the last 20 years, there's only five wide receivers in college football to put up 1,500 receiving yards and 15 touchdowns in a single season. The other four all got drafted in the first round. Those were Jamar Chase, Devontae Smith, Justin Jefferson, and Amari Cooper. Now, two of those were drafted last year, Jamar Chase, Devontae Smith. Justin Jefferson was uh, the year before, and then Amari Cooper was uh, back in 2014, I believe. So uh, lots of talent there. That bodes well for Jamison Williams' draft stock. I think if he declares he's a surefire first-round pick, I don't think that the teams would be as concerned with the injury. Uh, It obviously would maybe cause him to fall a little bit, but certainly not out of the first round. I would suspect that Williams will enter the draft with his stock being as high as it is. Uh, I would kind of be shocked if he came back to Alabama for one more year. And um, speaking of recruiting, we've we've had the Under Armour All-American game and the Army All-American game take place uh, over the past couple weekends. Uh, Some more college commitments have been made. And from where we stand right now, uh, here are the following schools with multiple top 50 recruits from the 2022 class. And this is using the 247 sports uh, recruiting rankings. So these are the schools that have at least two kids inside the top 50 committed to their programs. Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, USC, Texas A&M, Clemson, Penn State, North Carolina, LSU, and of course, Jackson State. Why not? Now, there's been two, including the uh, number two overall player uh, recruited by Deion Sanders at Jackson State. Uh, they had another one commit during the uh, Army All-American game this past weekend. So they, uh, Jackson State, it's, a, it's an FCS school, Division II school. They, uh, they've got two players inside the top 50. Now, that's unheard of, kind of unprecedented. Uh, both of them play corner. Uh, which is what Deion Sanders was very successful in the NFL at. So uh, I definitely think that there's a correlation there. These kids want to learn from one of the best, even though they're not playing in an elite, you know, the FBS or an elite conference as they probably could have. The last piece piece of uh, NCAA football news is another kind of coaching information. Um, Comes out of the Big 12. Former TCU head coach Gary Patterson he met this past week with the University of Texas head coach Steve Sarkeesian and the rest of the Longhorn staff about a possible coaching role at Texas. Of course, you remember Patterson uh, stepped down from TCU this past season after 20 years as the head coach. Uh, he's a defensive guru. Uh, they're not sure if the coaching position is going to be on field or if we be more of like some advisor role, um, but uh, Texas does have a couple of 
I think the most notable position that's open at the moment, at the moment is a special assistant to the head coach. So uh, it'd be interesting to see if Gary Patterson gets hired there. I think that would be very beneficial for Texas, especially that defense that really kind of fell apart there late in the year. But we'll close out around the island with some college basketball news. We're not going to do a full rankings update like we would normally. Rankings haven't changed that much. But uh, this past week, uh, at, at one point this past week, the top three scorers in Division One men's basketball are all from the Big Ten Conference. And it's the first time in the last 25 years that that's happened. Those guys are uh, Keegan Murray from Iowa, 24.7 points per game. Johnny Davis from Wisconsin at 22.6 points per game and Kofi Coburn from Illinois at 22.5 points per game. So uh, interesting to see that all three of the top scorers in D1 men's basketball all coming from the Big Ten. Now, the Big Ten is obviously a very solid basketball conference, um, so it's not surprising, but it's the first time in 25 years that that's happened. Over in the SEC, LSU just continues to win, especially at home. They have a 13-game home winning streak dating back to last year. They're 10-0 at home so far this year. And uh, they look really good. Um, the last two unbeaten teams in college basketball were the Baylor Bears and the USC Trojans. And on Tuesday night this past week, both of them lost on the same night to end their undefeated seasons, which is the fourth time in college basketball history, uh, F- FBA or Division One, I, I guess, um, that that's happened. Fourth time that uh, all remaining undefeated teams lost on the same night. Uh, Texas Tech ended up beating Baylor, and Baylor was having a 21-game winning streak heading into that game, of course, dating back to last year. Um, the, the Red Raiders were actually down 15 points uh, and came back to win and beat Baylor. Shocked them, really. Um, great effort by Texas Tech. And then USC lost to Stanford. So interesting news there out of college basketball, but uh, we'll we'll probably do another rankings update on the next episode or two. We're just, you know, basketball rankings don't fluctuate that much, uh, especially since they only come out once a week. So uh, I don't want to read off those rankings. Uh, you can you can certainly go find those online. But um, that's going to wrap up this episode of of uh, Sports Island. And uh, again, just keep an eye on on the NFL playoffs. We're going to have certainly some some breakdowns and some full coverage of those wild card matchups on next week's episode so definitely stay tuned for that it's going to be an exciting week of football thanks for listening to the sports island podcast be sure and find it on facebook at sports island podcast i'm rick mitchell and i'll catch you next time right here on the sports island podcast which is available everywhere you listen to podcasts